I used to think security was fun until I realized I had to fix the problems too. <laughs> Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brennan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking with Greg Harris, a principal security engineer at Fitbit. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Kickstart your SRE journey with the experts at 42lines.net. So, Greg, please introduce yourself. Hey, I'm uh, Greg Harris. I'm a security engineer at Fitbit. Um, and I actually started out at Fitbit as a infrastructure engineer on the operations side um, with you, Brendan, and Jack, mm-hmm. and moved into security a couple of years ago. So, Yeah, full disclosure, we used to work with Greg, and he was awesome to work with. And part of the reason we had him as a guest is he's really sharp on these things. So, no pressure. I'm psyched to be back. It's Thanks good to have you with us, the first time. So I haven't been following the security space as much recently. Um, I've been trying to keep up with the, the COVID happenings and all of the other, other pieces in the world. But I'm sure that the security landscape these days is always changing and always kind of evolving and moving. What are your biggest concerns with this whole work-from-home craziness in security? Yeah, it's a different uh, environment for sure, right? Because you have a bunch of people who used to be in the office where we have full control over the network, control over um, more control over endpoints, and now they're coming in from locations that we're not used to. Um, so you have problems where you have a lot of people hopping on VPNs and your VPNs are overloaded. Um, you have a lot of people who are trying to connect from potentially different workstations and from um, you have workstations that they're connecting from that aren't on the network. So that sort of throws uh, everything into disarray, I would say. Um, I guess the um, Beyond Corp is really where a lot of people have been going, um, and we've been going there too. Um, to refresh the listeners, um, Beyond Corp is? So Beyond Corp is sort of the idea of instead of uh, having our protections at the gateway, we're going to push the protections more towards the endpoint. So as long as you are connecting from your trusted endpoint, we're going to let you access those internal systems from home um, or from the coffee shop. Uh, And the idea is really, you know, in a traditional uh, corporate network, you are basically using network segmentation as defenses. So if you get through that first network um, layer of defense, right, you get onto that VPN or you get into the office and you plug in, a lot of the targets on that network are soft targets. They're not really well defended. And the idea with Beyond Corp is like to push the um, push the authentication to the endpoint, so that you're not relying on these boundaries for access controls. Um, and so that means like you have to do things like you know how do you know that the endpoint you're talking to is a trusted endpoint? Um, how do you know it's running your security software? How do you know that your users are sitting on it? Um, there's a lot of interesting problems there. Um, that endpoint being a user's laptop, obviously. A laptop or a workstation, yeah. Um, or even a mobile device, right? Like lots of people like to whip out their phone and want to look at tickets on Jira or they want to check emails. Um, Restart servers. Either. Test UIs. Or even SSH into boxes, right? Like 
you may want to SSH into prod without having to go through a VPN. Not SSHing from my phone. <laughs> People do it. It's tedious, though. Uh, but more or less, that's the fact of you have uh, some sort of certificate on your laptop, on your phone, and a certificate at the Beyond Corp side and you do mutual TLS authentication on both ends. Yeah, there's that's effectively how most people have implemented it. Um, Duo has a product, I think, I'm trying to remember what it's called now, Trusted Endpoints, that is implemented similarly. Um, but you really want to authenticate both the user and the device. And for it to really work well, you generally want to use short-lived certificates on that device. Um, so a lot a design I see a lot is that you know you have your IT staff that's rolling out endpoint protection that's asserting that your laptop is configured in a certain state, and they'll push out the certificate that they use to attest to that endpoint. And then you know you'll come in, you'll authenticate yourself, um, hopefully using SAML or some other single sign-on mechanism, um, and then you'll authenticate the endpoint, and then you'll get your connection to whatever the the backend service you want to connect to is, and you know. You can do it simple. You can have a bunch of policies on top of that. Um, you can check things like, you know, is this user connecting from Russia and they've never been in Russia before, right? That's a flag that maybe something is unusual here. So maybe you want a policy to deny that kind of connectivity. Um, so essentially you're moving the trust from your, uh, your inside of a, of, a, of a given network to you're using a device that we know and we have validated. How right. long are these certificates good for? Well, that's, you know, it all comes down to trade-offs because you want a certificate that proves that the endpoint had some protection within a certain period of time, right? But you also don't want to be in a situation where your user doesn't call home and they get locked out um, and now they can't get to any of their systems, which, you know, that's another whole headache, I think, for IT support organizations now is that, like, how do you do password resets or how do you assert uh, a user's identity if they don't have access to the corporate network and they don't have access to their corporate account? That's sort of another uh, topic for discussion, right? Um, I know a dear university that would just ask you to fax in a copy of your student ID card. Right. And that's not forgeable, right? Like, <laughs> Never. <laughs> Well, it's just in the in the identify, identifying devices. Um, we had a former employer that put the certificates in NVRAM on a Mac for secure boot. And if your battery went completely dead, you lost your cert. And their solution was, oh, bring it to IT, except we were a remote site. And you had to ship your laptop back and wait a week if you let your battery go completely dead. Because that doesn't happen on planes or anything. I'm not shipping my laptop back to Apple like this week because the battery on it died. I had to ship it back to IT corporate IT for that one. It was fun. And, and again, these are the trade-offs you have to live with of how... I mean, we all remember the, the battle days when you had SSL certificates. And they were SSL, not TLS. And they were good for three, four, or five years. And now, the kind of the modern thinking is... You hit Let's Encrypt every 30 days, and the certificate's good for, what, 60 or 90? And so you have this constantly rotating certificate that's always up to date, and it helps keep you out of that problem of, who updated the cert last? Who? I, I don't know. Right. Apple's actually pushing a standard change now where they're not going to accept certificates with a, a lifetime longer than a year. Um, 
which is really going to change like and you know I, I don't know if I like this whole idea of like the browsers leading by bullying um, because like Apple just says we're going to do this right and if you want to work with Safari you're going to have to to update but um, it's definitely interesting so you mentioned Duo Connect for um, implementing Beyond Corp. Is there any open source tools that would help you achieve this without, you know, going to a company? Yeah, you definitely can. Um, and it, so a lot of this depends on how much you want to roll yourself, right? So lots of I think IT organizations do have PKI in place and may already have certificates on laptops. Um, so you can you can use that to build off on. I would say. Um, I know I don't I hesitate to recommend it because I haven't used it, but I know that Mozilla has an I think they call it identity trust proxy, which is on GitHub. Um, and I think that's built similarly where uh, it'll do SAML. Um, and I'm not actually sure it uses a TLS certificate, but it's sort of like the idea of a, a beyond corp application. Um, SSH is interesting because uh, if you've ever played with SSH, you probably run into proxy command before. And proxy command is an option that you can pass to the SSH command line or you can set up in your config file that will run a uh, alternative program to initiate a connection to a machine. So I've used you know, that to get around everybody's firewall ever. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> not out loud, Jack. Not out loud. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but you could you could easily build a Beyond Corp based around that, right? So maybe you take... Um, there's actually a tool that uh, it's not built for this, but I think it's pretty cool called Ghost Tunnel, um, which you can check out on GitHub. I think it's by Square. Um, but the idea behind Ghost Tunnel is it's a mutual TLS authenticating proxy that you can just drop in the middle of places. So like you could build a uh, quote-unquote cheap version of Beyond Corp maybe by throwing that in front of your SSH servers and you use Ghost Tunnel to prove you have a valid endpoint certificate and then you do your user authentication with your SSH key um, and boom, you've got sort of cheap Beyond Corp. And you could do something similar with a squid proxy um, like any any proxying solution. It really depends on uh, how much time you want to spend setting that up versus just taking an out-of-the-box solution. Um, I'm personally really biased, and I almost always prefer to build it myself, um, but that tends to cause maintenance headaches over time, so... Yeah, there's that the whole trade-off between time and money, and we've we've discussed on this this podcast many times that there are times that it's much better to spend your staff time to learn and really fundamentally understand something, and there are times that it's better to just spend the money, and it's a different decision for every organization. So because one organization chose it doesn't mean that it's good for you, and just because they chose it doesn't mean it's bad for you. It's every decision like this you have to evaluate. How important is it for you to actually own this and run this internally and really know it versus just spend some money and make the problem go away? Well, but that's a fallacy in my opinion. Like you can, you say you're going to spend some money and make the problem go away, but there's no vendor solution I've ever seen that completely makes the problem go away, right? You still end up having to operate it and upgrade it. And, you know, sometimes it can be even worse um, in a way because like when something doesn't work, you you have no idea why it didn't work and you have to have round trips with external support but well, there, there I, is that but there's also the fallacy of i built this entire bespoke thing in-house and i'm the only person who knows how it works 
because I invented it. And then you have to deal with the, the fallout from that. So again, it, it, this is a continuum and you have to decide <laughs> what, what entry is appropriate for you and your company. One size never fits all. And honestly, half the time you end up learning what the vendor solution is doing internally anyways while you're debugging it because you just need the thing to work. But Yeah, I'm more familiar with looking at things like um, AWS Kinesis is effectively Kafka. And if you start poking into it, you start realizing how they've implemented Kafka internally. And you're like, oh, well, it okay, that kind of works. And you've figured it out. And it's far cheaper to run it yourself. But there is maintenance and overhead you have to, you have to do. So... It's a, it's a, again, it's a balance. Yep. Really depends on the size of your org. And yeah, we could keep talking about this, but I don't think that's what we're here to talk about. <laughs> so earlier you mentioned SSH keys. So how, what's, what's a good way to implement MFA alongside SSH nowadays? So that's a, that's a good question. Um, the, some or some solutions I've seen I don't really like, um, which are things where you have like a customized PAM program that pops up and then does like a push notification. Um, I've seen other solutions that I like a little bit better where, uh, again, you're going through something like the SSH um, proxy command option where this proxy command goes off and does some other authentication for you. Um, one thing that, you know, is sort of interesting, and again, like, I haven't actually played with this, but I've sort of thought around it. Um, SSH is the ability to have a certificate authority hierarchy, where there is some certificate authority signing certificates for that SSH connection, and certificates have expirations. So if you look at Vault, one of the Vault, uh, HashiCorp Vault backends is an SSH backend that does this, right? Vault serves as your certificate authority and it can issue short-term keys. So, you know, one approach you might consider is like, do you look at something like, maybe you have a vault set up where you already have SAML that does MFA configured and your developer wants to log into a machine, you write a little binary that goes, hits vault, pulls out a, a short-term certificate, and now you have MFA SSH. Um, that's one approach. Uh, if you're using a BeyondCorp proxy again, like you probably already have that built into your BeyondCorp proxy because, or if you're using a commercial one, I should say, or even I think the Mozilla one, because it is already authenticating the user through something like SAML, where hopefully you have an identity provider that's doing the two factors. Didn't Netflix have a stateless SSH key program service bless or something? Yeah, bless. Yeah. Bless. Yeah. They have something similar. Yeah. Okay. It, and that functionally serves the same kind of role that you you don't have these long-lived SSH keys? I believe so, but it's been several years since I looked at it. Okay. Um, it's, it's one of those tools that I always wanted to look at and never actually got around to. So the, the other interesting thing about um, SSH temporary keys is it also solves your offboarding problem, um, which a lot of orgs have issues with because... It, a lot of times your your SSH system is different than your HR identity system. So, you know, if you terminate an employee, HR might turn it off, but like you don't necessarily know that you cleaned up all the SSH keys. And if you have a solution that's relying on, that has like expiring certificates, um, you're in better shape. I've only worked for one organization that had a completely automated and successfully automated offboarding process. And hint, 
they're a large university that's, that's been doing tech for a very long time, and it was all completely programmatic. Everybody else that I've ever worked for has had wrinkles and undocumented cases in the offboarding, and something gets missed. Um, many, many years ago, I was working for an organization, and after I left, three, four months later, um, my boss called me up and just said, hey, this is a friendly thing. This is not a, a gotcha thing. But could you try logging back into the admin interface for the mail server? Sure. And I was able to log in. And he's like, yeah, I thought so. Thanks. It happens. SSH is hard, and especially for startups and folks just trying to get on the ground running. And, of course, they need administrative access to, to some of the instances and stuff that they set up. Doing SSH well at that onboarding kind of level is really challenging, I think. And everywhere I've been, you know, they, they pass me a, an SSH key and off I go and, you know, hope they can clean up all the instances once I leave. Um, and the more I get into the nitty gritty, the more difficult I know it, it is to to deal with all those security issues. And it takes a company really, you know, Fitbit size to roll out a full Beyond Corp get those proxies in place, figure out temporary keys for SSH. Uh, there's lots of interesting problems there that are just sort of out of reach from your from the average startup. Well, a lot of places get very concerned with the, oh, it's broken, we have to get in there to fix it. Well, what happens when your sign-on is broken and you have to get in there to fix it? I've been on both sides of that one. And that's where you end up with a lot of leftover SSH keys. Is guys, temporary fixed back door. And then they forget about it. Yeah, you, you always want some sort of break glass solution to anything you're building out like this. But of course, that becomes the easy way in. Um, so, so, the, the, so one of the, um, just to say, Google Cloud, I think, actually has a really nice solution around SSH key management um, called OS Login. And it's a pretty nice feature. It allows you to integrate with their cloud identity or G Suite and store your SSH key there. And so when you terminate the user, if you remove them from your G Suite organization or you deactivate the account, um, OS login makes it go away. Uh, and that's a really, really nice feature to have like for free with your cloud provider. Um, hint, I hint, like AWS. that feature a lot. I've seen several different ways to implement that with AWS, but there's no really built-in feature that does that sort of out of the box. AWS sort of assumes that you're going to get some consultants involved to stand that up for you as, as part of onboarding into AWS. And that really kind of rubs me that some of that stuff they don't have out of the box. Yep, I totally agree. Um, now, of course, you have to turn OS login on and Google's default, like pull the SSH key out of the instance metadata is uh, has all the same problems in terms of erasing keys but still at least they give you a uh, a solution out of the box I was really happy when when we got that so on the other side of ssh um, one of the the downfalls of ssh keys in general has been that if a if an end user an administrator whoever is generating their own key they don't have to encrypt or they don't have to put in a meaningful passphrase on their on the private side of the key are there ways you can check for that or is it really just blind it's really blind. Um, the the challenge response sort of signature system has no idea whether or not you've encrypted your 
your key. And all that password is doing is just it's encrypting the binary file um, on the on your local desktop. Now, I think it might be possible to build alternative solutions not using stock SSH. Like YubiKeys, for instance, I believe from reading docs that they come preloaded with an attestation certificate that basically says this was a YubiKey. And I believe using the PIV module, you can issue additional certificates that are signed in a way that allows you to provide a chain that proves the... Um, should probably double check this before you publish, but <laughs> allows you to prove the um, key was actually generated on device. Um, and obviously, if you have that proof, like you could build a system around that. Yeah, we talked about YubiKeys several years ago, or several many episodes ago on this show. And one of the things that I know we discussed was if you use the YubiKey generated SSH private keys, the key is never on your device which is the the beauty of that, that you, if somebody breaks into your laptop or your desktop, they still can't get to the private key. The key material was never actually there. So it, it's another layer of security and protection for ac- your access token to get other places. That's, that is true. Um, the UB, so the UB keys are interesting too, because you can store SSH keys in two modes. You can use PIV, which I think is PKCS 11, or you can use the PGP mode. Um, and if you want bigger keys, at least back when I was using YubiKey 4, you had to use PGP mode. Um, that said, uh, I'm going to plug another tool that I use that I really like called Krypton. Um, I think it's crypt.co. And so originally it was a U2F app. Um, U2F is WebAuthn, or it's sort of like the um, unfishable multi-factor authentication. But um, Krypton... Uh, originally allowed you to generate a U2F token on your mobile phone. And so you would go to a website, you'd have their extension installed and it would send the challenge to your phone and that your phone would store the private key inside its secure enclave. So Android and iOS generally have hardware backed key stores. Um, So no one's getting at that key. Um, And they added a additional mode for SSH keys. So you can generate your SSH key on your phone and you install an agent of theirs, uh, again, using SSH proxy command on your machine. And when you go to SSH to a host, uh, it basically uses a cool little SNS system they've set up where it dispatches a message that your phone receives that says, hey, you want to SSH from here to there. And you get a prompt on your phone and you can be like, yes, allow this, allow this for three hours. Um, and then your phone will do the signing operations for you over SSH. Um, it's really nice. They got bought by Akamai about a year ago, so I don't know if they're still maintaining or updating that app, um, but I still use it daily. Uh, I really like it. I will go ahead and throw a link into the show notes anyway, um, if I can dig that up, so people can, can take a look at the, the the vestiges of that project. Yeah, it's, I think it's open source as well, um, so if someone wants to fork it. Um, but the... Uh, yeah, the nice thing about that, though, is like with a YubiKey, you know, you're always at risk of leaving it at home, I think, to some extent. <laughs> Although, I guess you could carry it on your keychain, but like, no one leaves their mobile phone at home. Well, um, nobody leaves their home anymore either, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, cheap shot. It's true, but I'm more likely to carry my phone upstairs with me than I am my keys, so. I don't know. I went ahead and put my YubiKey on my keychain with my car key because 
I'm not going to get to work without it. And it solved the problem. Of course, then if I lose my keys, which has been known to happen, that introduces a new problem. So we've been talking a lot about some of the things that I guess larger infrastructure or larger companies can do with secure full time security teams. What can listeners of the show who work at a company that do not have a full time security team, how can they uh, do things better or implement some of the things that we've talked about? So I would take a step back. Um, and so I've come sort of a long way, I think, in my path through security because I sort of started out on the technical side and, and trying to break into things and missed some of the, the fundamentals. Um, but if I were to encourage one thing for you guys and, and all your listeners to do, um, do some form of threat modeling. Um, so threat modeling is the idea of we're going to sit down and think about the system we're building. We're going to think about the pieces of that system, the assets, the users, the data. We're going to think about how the information flows. And then we're going to sort of brainstorm what threats there are. There's a whole lot of methodologies out there that you can use. Um, the most common one is STRIDE, um, which stands for uh, spoofing, tampering, repudiation, information disclosure, denial of service, or elevation of privilege. But the idea is you look at all these data flows and you think, all right, um, here's my user sitting with their browser interacting with the web front end. Right, or they're, they're talking to the load balancer. What can go wrong? What could cause the request to get spoofed? How could someone tamper with this request? Um, you know, how could someone send a request and repudiate and say that they didn't do it? Um, this really encourages you to think about the problem holistically. And I think a lot of the times as technical people, we sort of focus in and drill on the technical bits. But if you think about the problem holistically, right, like, What's more threatening to a standard web server system? Is it that someone's going to find an Apache zero day um, or even find a bug in your application? Or is someone going to put a Trojan on your administrator's machine and get a key logger and just log their password and get in, right? Um, and those, those are sort of the attacks I wasn't necessarily always thinking about when I started, and I try to think about them more now. Um, threat modeling is something that you should do as a team, though, right? Like, don't try and do it by yourself. Grab a whiteboard, doesn't have to be super formal. Sit down, think about the system that you've designed or that you're building and work through it um, with a couple other people. That would be my first big piece of advice. Um, the second thing I would say is know what your assets are um, because to some extent you can't defend what you don't know about. Um, so asset management is super important. And if you don't have good asset management, like that's not just a security problem, that's an operational problem too. So when you, when you say assets, are you talking about laptops and phones and those things? Are you talking about servers? Are you talking about user data? Are you talking about, what is your asset definition here? All of those things are assets. Um, and it really depends what your business is doing, where your liabilities are going to be, right? Because, you know, I've, a lot of times, like if you look at bug bounties, for instance, a lot of times companies get in trouble because they had some random web server that an intern wrote and deployed like four years ago and no one knew it was there and someone comes in and pops it, right? Or it, what's the um, the data breach, uh, one of the credit... Um, uh, yeah, the they had the AWS key uh, or the... Um 
Uh, I know what you're talking about, but I can't. It, it was they, they had there was a bug in um, struts that was in some application that was years old on a server out there, and it's like if a, a struts zero day comes out like, and you don't know where all your servers are and what software they're running, how do you how are you going to know what your liability is, what your risk is, right? So just knowing what your assets are is super important and so here's what i would do like if you if you think you even if you think you know where all your assets are um go to shodan or go to census c-e-n-s-y-s um these are sort of search engines that index a lot of metadata um just from all over the internet just type in your company name um and see what comes back um i've used that before to discover things that um i didn't know about the other the other interesting thing is like in the modern internet, we constantly have data leaks, right? So things like the uh, certificate transparency log, if you have private internal domains that you're getting certificates issued for from like a public certificate authority, those entries are going into um, the certificate transparency logs because every public issuing certificate authority, for the most part now, publishes those records. Um, so that's sort of I guess that's not around assets, but it's another sort of information. Yeah. And suddenly you're leaving right? all those like, those internal host names that people now know what to be attacking when they break in. Right. And then someone finds like a, a server-side request forgery bug uh, on your front end, and all of a sudden they can reach into your back end through that, right? And it's... So asset management, threat modeling are the two main things I would focus on. And you don't need a security team to do those things. Like... I do threat modeling at Fitbit, um, but I'm more of a facilitator and I help put on the black hat hat that a lot of people may not um, may not be thinking about how uh, an actor might be trying to harm users, right? Um, but like the, the domain experts in the system that you're building or the system that you're operating, that's you. That's not going to be the security team. Um, and you're going to have the important context. Yeah, um, I find it interesting that the latest Twitter uh, hacker issue wasn't a hack at all. It was, again, a, a regular phishing uh, thing, and they caught one of the, or I guess a few administrators' passwords and were able to get into back-end tools to do, uh, you know, to make people, po- to post things to people's Twitters, even though the uh, tw- Twitter accounts, even though they didn't do it. Good old-fashioned social engineering. It's the way you get in, right? It's almost always the, like... right. <laughs> Most attacks aren't about like O'Day um, new vulnerabilities that you found. It's uh, it's either you're going in through a human weakness or you found some unmanaged asset. I mean, that is the the story of today's modern society. Why hack the computer when you can hack society? Well, it, it's also one of the flaws in distributed systems and the whole, you know, the the push, the blind push that a lot of people took towards microservices, where we're going to break this application into all these little parts, and they'll have to talk to each other. And if you don't really understand what you're doing in terms of the, the authentication model and the, and the security model there, you open up an incredible number of holes that are just waiting for somebody else to slide into. Microservice security is hard. For sure. Only imagine the your side of that. I mean, I've done a little bit of the operation side of it, but I've not done the looking at the stack that the entire company is running kind of side. And that's, whoo. Yeah, see our past show about going back to the monolith. 
So as uh, somebody who's about to move out of the country and wants to have uh, access to streaming medias, um, what's new with uh, VPNs and how good are they? Where's things headed that direction if everybody's moving to be Encore? VPNs are interesting, right? There's all these fly-by-night VPN providers that are popping up now. Um, and the media companies are pretty good about like figuring out what those origin IPs are <laughs> and, and shutting them down. Um, you may be better off putting like a Raspberry Pi in Jack's house and you know paying him some money every month. There's, I mean, it, it was it was a joke to get it started, but I, I am that you know I know everybody is going to be on Corp, but there's still times where traditional VPN access is really needed, and it's well, well especially if I, if uh, if you're an executive traveling to an, uh, let's say another country, uh, a full tunnel VPN is something that would be nice to, to use yeah. in that case. And honestly, I haven't used a commercial one that didn't make me want to run in front of a bus. So <laughs> <sighs> I'm, I'm yes, I don't disagree with you there um, on any of those points. It's interesting because a lot of the VPNs had like beyond corp uh, authentication functionality i'd say for a while um like uh, i believe f5 has the ability to do the host certificate based attestation um and then you combine that with saml and you sort of have the same level of beyond corp security um the thing that you know i i'm not necessarily opposed to vpns um, and i think vpns can work with beyond corp the thing that bugs me is more the model of once you're on the vpn you can access all these soft targets um, and that's still scary to me. I'd rather see like real endpoint to endpoint security on all those systems. Um, but but I, it's yeah, good. I know this isn't your favorite model, but Jack and I worked together at a university many years ago, and our workstations, our printers, our servers were all on the public internet. And so there was, you didn't have the illusion that you had a firewall or a VPN protecting you from the big, bad, scary internet. It was everything is hostile all the time. Everything has to be secured all the time. And while it's not great to have your stuff sitting out there on the public, it also gets you in a security posture that doesn't give you that false sense of, you know, security or whatever that you're, oh, I'm fine. I'm, I'm behind a couple of firewalls. It's like, no, I'm, I'm out here in public. Yeah, MIT has a class A, right? They've got a slash eight and they have a ton of stuff out on the internet. I don't know what university you guys are at. If you had a slash eight or a 16 or. Jack, what did we have? We had. We had multiple class Bs. Yeah. Okay. We had a large amount of public IP space. And that was a really cool, really interesting environment to work in and cut your teeth on. Because, yeah, you had to assume your stuff was on the hostile internet. Um, If students, for students to access their files, submit their homework, they're coming in over the hostile internet. I mean, they're checking their mail over the internet. So most of our stuff grew up there just really plugged into the internet with public IP addresses. And yeah, that's not what I would do today. Yeah. I mean, well, but I can figure my server is the same. You can do that in a somewhat safe way, right? It also depends on what kind of network gear you have sitting out in front and of what ports you're allowing through. Um, All of them. Well, no, our well, university blocked, um, SMB file transfer, and they blocked one of the other Microsoft protocols. 
that just it didn't it didn't reach beyond the gateway and it was because of performance if you were in you know virginia or california and you tried to connect to a, a window share in your office performance is gonna be terrible and you're, you're gonna call and complain about it and so it was like we're just dropping it at the gateway so you can't call and complain not because it was necessarily insecure i worked at a large federal agency that just every device was public and there was no firewall oh yeah that hurts i mean interesting that's one way to make sure you have good security (laughs) but you know federal agency i don't know how good it was I'll, I'll take whatever defense you can get me. So I'll, I'll take VPNs. I prefer Beyond Corp, but I'll take VPNs, and I'll prefer them both together, to be honest. But WireGuard's really cool. You should check out WireGuard if you haven't checked it out yet. I've heard a bunch about that. So what makes WireGuard so hot? Uh, so it is... The crypto is super nice. It's modern. Um, unlike things like OpenVPN or IPsec, which are both notorious at, like negotiating ciphers. The problem with negotiating ciphers is it opens to you all kinds of attacks, like downgrade attacks, where one side says, oh, I can only speak DES, or something like that, right? And, like, it's also, anytime you have negotiation like that going on, like, it's an opportunity for parser bugs, it's an opportunity for logic bugs. Um, WireGuard's much nicer. It's got a set of crypto primitives that are associated with the version, um, and their motto is, like, if someone breaks some of the crypto we're using here, we'll release protocol version 2, and it'll use a different set of primitives. Um, so you eliminate that negotiation, which pulls out a whole lot of complexity. Um, it's also built into Linux 5.7, I think it went in. So, like, you have it out of the box. Um, it's dead simple. So you have peers, you have routes, and you have public keys, and you have your private key. And you basically say, you know, I'm going to talk to this peer. They're allowed to be on this addresses, and this is their public key. Um, now, the downside to that is that means it doesn't come with any, like, key management system. Like, one of the nice things about IPsec, right, is you can use a certificate authority, or you could use Kerberos um, to have some entity telling you that this is a valid client cert. So with WireGuard, you don't have that. You have to, to build that management layer yourself, but it's also dead simple to use. Well, but the, the benefit of that, though, is that um, I've, I've been following some people trying to add NMFA to WireGuard. And as as much as I know, I don't think there's a way easy way to do MFA with IPsec, for example, at least with open source implementations. Yeah, that's it's an interesting way to look at it because WireGuard really, it's meant to be negotiating a host, right? And MFA right. is more something you associate with a, a user. Yeah, right, yeah. So, Which is why it's a module or whatever, or a plugin. So all it's of not this, something core. All, all of this host-to-host VPN stuff makes me think about the... Oh, several years ago, there was all those... The, the papers and things that were released about sniffing the cloud provider's inter-DC um, network traffic. At this point, how, as a security professional, how do you feel about the communication between instances inside, say, a private um, VPC or inside a VPC or those kinds of things? Do you encrypt all the traffic anyway? Do you trust your provider's encryption? So I think to some extent, you got to trust your provider's encryption. Um, But I will generally push for doing mutual TLS or authentication over those links anyways. Um, And here's why. 
So a, a lot of the providers like Google or Amazon allow you to do firewalls on things like security groups. So on Google, it's service accounts, which are attached to like the GC instance. In Amazon, it's security groups that are attached to your instance. But you know, a lot of systems today might have multiple services running on the same machine. Um, so maybe you have a Mesos cluster and that Mesos cluster is a scheduler and you have no idea what jobs are running on what machine. So if you're in that kind of environment, you can't do the sort of nice um, service X talks to service Y through the cloud provider firewall rules. Um, and that means like you have this risk that you know service X and service Y are talking between these two nodes, but maybe service Z, which is a malicious service, starts on one of these nodes and it can talk to the other one, right? And your firewall is not gonna prevent that. So I think having mutual TLS or, or some other form of authentication on your connectivity is important still, um, even within that VPC. And of course, this I'm going to go back to threat modeling, right? You need to think about what does your architecture look like? You know, maybe you are in a scenario where you don't have to worry about those different services on the box, and you can just trust the VPN link. Um, the other benefit to going with something like mutual TLS, though, is that you know you could have a hostile actor on the cloud provider part who tries to get in, and it gives you another sort of layer of defense there. Like even if the provider's network controls are compromised or they have a bug that causes the firewall to not drop traffic, like if you have that authentication layer in place, your traffic's still going to be protected. Okay, that makes sense. I was just kind of curious what the modern thoughts were on it because I know that um, especially Google made a big PR push to talk about how they were encrypting all the traffic between every link, between everything, and they were trying to make sure that people were were at peace with the idea that they were encrypting all their stuff in transit as much they as they could. They had some really nice SLAs. Yeah. I mean, they. I think they have their own crypto hardware as well for doing that, right? Like they're wouldn't at the surprise where they build it themselves, um, which that must be nice. Um, but even there, though, right? Like, so that's they're trying to make you think things are safe in terms of like the NSA spying on you. Um, and I suspect Google has really good controls in place. But like, you know, rogue employee is still always a threat, right? Like, people can can turn your provider against you. But again, it's it's trade offs, and you need to decide to like how much do I care about that risk? What's the downside of someone getting access to that data when deciding how well you want to defend against it. And I'm thinking a lot about the, the AWS best practices for running Kubernetes and having that three-layer VPC setup where you have one VPC that has your load balancers in it, another VPC that's most of your Kubernetes jobs and applications that doesn't have internet access and the third VPC that has your databases and, and data storage stuff attached to it that can only access the middle VPC. And there are layers there, but you, if you're a valid account holder or an admin in that situation, there's nothing that, that authenticates you from, from being able to get to, from service to service. Yep. It's like... VPC is also like you really want to use fine grain firewall rules wherever you can. And Kubernetes is one of those technologies that makes it a little bit more difficult because you don't necessarily know where things are running. 
But there's also really nice service mesh um, things for Kubernetes uh, Istio, which, to be honest, I haven't played with, but I've looked at some of the specs, and it, it can do stuff like the mutual um, MTLS set up for you so that you speak MTLS between services and there's some network policy controls I know that you can put in place to sort of limit um, what nodes are talking to what um, but I mean a VPC without firewall rules is no better than a traditional network that you know you just have a bunch of gear plugged into um, and it's pretty trivial for an attacker to move throughout it so since you just brought up some of the security stuff for Docker and using mesh, what other are best practices for Docker since it is a little bit more complicated? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the general best practices for Docker, I think are best practices for any system, which is really like minimize your dependencies because anytime you're including, uh, any dependency in your system, right. Um, a it's your job to keep it up to date and that's really hard. Um, and B, it's a tool for someone who breaks your system to, to move through the environment. Um, the seccomp filters are pretty cool in Docker. It's got okay defaults. Um, App Armor is pretty cool to play with as well. Um, App Armor is kind of cool because it's got a profiling mode you can turn on. So if you have your like Docker application that you want to super harden, you can flip on App Armor and um, run it and see what the profile looks like. What syscalls does it use? What paths does it write to? Um, and you sort of build the exact list of access it needs. And then you run it in constrained mode where it's limited to that access. And then someone compromises it and tries to use it or tries to use the container in some way that the application normally doesn't like they're, they're caught in it. Um, I saw an interesting project on GitHub and I can't remember what it was called. I was trying to remember it. Um, that does something similar with shared libraries where, you know, you take your Docker container, which may be big because it's a Ubuntu base and you run your application and it profiles and it looks at what shared libraries your application actually uses. And it lets you reduce the Docker image size by eliminating the libraries that you're not using. That's kind of cool. Yeah. One, um, one other, so I, I, I've got the side project at work that I'm playing with. That's not really related to this, but, um, it's shipping a minimal VM. Um, and so I've been playing with like, how do I get a virtual machine way down? I start out with like a Debian image. And then I found this project, which I th was really fun to play with, um, called minimal Linux, um, on GitHub. And it's basically a set of build scripts that have been put together that build you a kernel and libc, and you can build other stuff if you want it and BusyBox, And that's all it is. And like, you can get an image that's like, five megs in size that boots in QEMU, which is fun to play with. But if you think about like, what is Linux, right? It's a kernel with a bunch of syscalls and your application binary. So if you can get yourself in a scenario where like you could have a Docker container that just has your application binary, and that's pretty easy to do with things like Golang. Um, it's a little bit harder with Python or, um, anything that's using shared libraries because you need that set of shared libraries to run them. But like the most the most secure container you can build just has your application and nothing else, um, right? Because where are you going to jump to? So full disclosure, I work for Sysdig now, um, but Sysdig has a set of profiling and security tools that either load into the kernel via eBPF or via kernel module, and then basically dump the syscalls out to a ring buffer, 
and harvest that and then centrally report on. So you can have a, a kind of an overview of all of the Docker containers or all the Kubernetes services on your network and watch in close to real time when things are starting to try to get to Etsy password unexpectedly. So if you can't control every container, um, there are tools, and ours is paid, um, that allow you to do this. The The core of Sysdig is is open source, and you can download it and run it, but the the, the aggregation of the data and the centralization of it is, is the, the commercial side of the software stack. But it's really cool stuff in terms of giving you visibility into some of these things that people never really had those tools at scale before. And it can be a lot of fun and Oh, we've had those opening. tools, just not on Linux. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, Brendan now you have them on me. Linux, Jack. <laughs> yes, I, I, I also love D-Trace. <laughs> I remember one of the coolest things I saw was a router that was Linux. And basically, init exited. Oh, that's right. And so the kernel was still running, but there was nothing else. Just passing packets? Mm -hmm. Yep. Whatever the last state of the loaded rules was, this is what it did. That's all it did. You needed to make a change, you had to reboot. Probably booted up pretty fast, though. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like... uh, Linux is pretty full-featured. Like, if you implement the syscalls you need in your binary, um, it's an interesting way of looking at it. The, um, so if, if you look at... Uh, I don't know if you guys use Basil. Um, Basil? Basil? The build it's system? open-source Google build tool. Um, they have uh, a Docker rule set, and I believe they have a bunch of container images in that rule set that, it, like basically try to not have an operating system and provide just the bare minimum of what you need to run um, run stuff. But, I mean, if you have containers, I assume that also means, like, what, do you, what are you doing for patching those containers, right? And how are you monitoring that? And that's, like, a whole can of worms, too. Yeah, how are you figuring out which version of libc you're running or which version of OpenTLS or whatever it is? Um, also, again, that disclaimer that I worked with them, Sysdig has a scanning product that will scan through all your running containers and give you an inventory of every place that every binary and everything is being used. And these kinds of tools are critical in especially organizations that are relying on containers for everything they do and can't track the build system completely, which scares me in a very different way. Yeah, the container ecosystem is really interesting. I cut my teeth when we had RPMs and Debian's and it was hard enough at that point in time to to track what update level each PC, each instance was. And that's much different with Docker and Kubernetes and running those containers on a scheduler. And there are a lot of different tools starting to come out with that. Uh, I have to say, I kind of like the Sysdig version. Oh, I just pulled upstream. It's fine. Well, so speaking of Docker images, I mean, do you... Do you like the idea of just pulling things off of uh, like Docker Hub, or, or do you actually like to uh, for an organization to build their own, even if upstream you're basically duplicating what Upstream does? I like to have a common. Oh, sorry. Oh, Greg, you. That it really comes down to risk tolerance, right? Like, yeah, generally, 
I'm mostly, and I don't have a good reason for saying this, but if something comes from library, which is like the Docker blessed library, I sort of feel okay with it. Um, also partially because Google mirrors a subset of library to the their Google Container Registry, so it must be fine, right? Um, but like, yeah, it's it's a hard problem. Um, it is because then you get into if a team like let's say my team depends on Prometheus, and now I get behind, and Prometheus releases a, a newer version that patches a really important bug. And we're backlogged, and it takes a month to get to it. Versus if we were pulling off of the registry, I mean, yeah, right. Another thing that's interesting, though, is like, so I don't know about Sysdig's product, but a lot of the Docker container scanners are really just wrappers around <clears throat> the package management system that the container has, right? Whether that be dpackage or RPM or whatnot, and. Like sometimes they also have enough intelligence to run something like dependency check um, that will strip open jars and identify like jar libraries there. But a lot of them have a really hard time if you're compiling C code or Golang code and plopping your binary in your container. Like there's no standardized metadata, right? And a lot of containers are built that way now, um, which makes it really hard to to scan them. Um, I don't really have any answers for that one. It's just a limitation I've seen in a lot of these products. Yeah, and I can't speak authoritatively about how Sysdig does the scanning. I'm much more focused on the the, the metrics monitoring side of it and kind of the operational um, runtime of it right now. Um. Um, I should throw out some tools, though, if you, if you do want to try and uh, solve for this space. Um, OWASP has a tool called Dependency Track, um, which is pretty cool. I built some integrations around it. Um, and you can hook your build system up to it. And the whole idea behind, behind dependency track is that when you build your product, you produce a SBOM or software bill of materials that you then register with the dependency track server. And it will go out and check uh, open source vulnerability databases. The um, NIST has a national vulnerability databases and some other sources. And it'll come back and tell you, like, here's the dependencies in your product. These ones are out of date. These ones have vulnerabilities. It's open source. It's free. Um, you can go check it out. Um, I also use uh, Anchor Engine. Um, I've played a little bit with. They have an open source and a paid version, um, and they do container scanning. Um, and I, I, I can't speak to other products because I haven't played with other products, but they're pretty nifty. Um, they basically download your container image, pop it open, examine the, um, the operating system package manager to figure out if you have any vulnerabilities there. They'll also run, I believe, dependency check um, which is another project that is designed to sort of look at um, binary artifacts and decide whether or not there are any vulnerabilities within it. Um, dependency check and dependency track, I know, confusing. Similar names, slightly different things. Okay, um, we'll, we'll throw links in the show notes so um, leaders, or readers can um, dig through that and kind of get a, a sense of what these things are. Yeah, they're, they're good tools, though, um, and for the most part, they're free. So play with them. But, you know, the most important thing is, well, not the most important, an important thing is making sure that you can rebuild your containers or that you have a system that's pulling those updates. And, like, if you have good CI, CD, um, you should be taking updates all the time because the problem is if you don't take updates, right, until the big security vulnerability happens and then you have to take the update, 
you might be four or five versions behind. And then it's <laughs> like, oh, there was an architectural change and now this library works. Our code doesn't compile anymore. And like you don't want the you don't want that to happen on the day the zero day comes out, right? So always be updating. This reminds me of the conversations we've had over the years, both in this profession and in this podcast, about how package managers are terrible and it's it's the root of all evil, but there's no good solution. Do you switch to the the, the platform's package manager? Do you switch to the language's pa- package manager? Do you switch to the project's package manager? No, they're all terrible. And having not having one's even worse. So what do you do? And it's... It, none of it's clean and easy. Yeah, and like I, I think earlier in my career, I always put on this hat of like stability is the most important thing. So of course I don't want to take a new version of the library because it might not be stable um, and it might break the thing. But it's like... Now that I'm on the security side, I'm much more like, always be updating. Like, if it breaks your build, <laughs> fix your build. Because um, you got to pay the price at some point, and it's cheaper if you pay it over time and not wait until something bad happens. Yeah, my general philosophy for building Docker containers, personally, is trying to use a base image of uh, like the Ubuntu Slim or one of the, 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 the relatively stripped-down images and then add back in a couple of networking tools. So if I need to do debugging on the container, I have the tools I need on that container. And then load in just the runtime and just the application based on what I'm building. And occasionally you have to violate that for other stupid reasons. But I really try to keep it a, a consistent set of libraries. When I'm rebuilding it, I know what I'm rebuilding from. And I'm sure that there's, there's reasons why that's bad. But again, this is my personal stuff. I mean... Any system that is easy for you to update, I think, is a good system. Like, there's trade-offs in everything you do, right? Yeah, I know Jack will kill me, but I, I like, uh, especially with Go apps, I love it just being like a, a I love using the, um, oh, what is it, the, the basically the nothing image from Docker and just throwing on the, the binary and that's scratch. it. Scratch. Yeah, scratch. Thank you. <laughs> yes, and just run it as a knit. That's it, the it, best feature of Go. Exactly. Yeah. But as Brendan was mentioning, if you need to troubleshoot something and you would like to do it inside the container, uh, you, <laughs> just can't. Not, you just can. <laughs> no, you just build your, your troubleshooting into your tool, into your ex- application. Ex- exactly. Or and just build a better tool. <laughs> what, what could you possibly write incorrectly in writing a you know shell, a shell parser? I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Kickstart your SRE journey with the experts at 42lines.net. And Greg, I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It was really great to have you on and to talk to you about kind of all of these things. Yeah, it was a blast. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your, email, or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night.
implementing TCP dump sounds easy. Can't be that hard. It's just plug into NetFilter. 